0: Oh, hello you! Welcome back to the show. My guest today is Christopher Mason. He's a professor at Weill Cornell Medicine, founding director of the World Quant Initiative for Quantitative Prediction, and an author. Eventually, the sun is going to engulf the earth. This means that if we want human and animal life to not be snuffed out within a billion years, we need to reach other worlds. And Christopher has put together a 500-year roadmap for how we could do it. Today, Expect to learn why spaceflight is so harsh on the human body, how genetic manipulation could assist us with survival, whether locking generations of humans on a spaceship is ethical, if zero-gravity birth is possible, whether anyone has had sex in space yet, why we should bathe in yogurt, and much more. Honestly, I don't think I'm ever going to get bored of dreaming about the potential futures for humanity, where we could end up and how we might get there and different strategies for getting across the galaxy. And even more mental than that is the fact that Christopher has somehow managed to get an entire lab of people to actually be on board with this. So not only are they crazy theories, but somehow they're they're happening in the real world, which yeah, I mean, the future is here. We just haven't got the flying cars yet. Another reason to be very positive about the future is that the Modern Wisdom Reading List is now live and you've got a hundred amazing books, including fiction, nonfiction and real life stories that you can sink your teeth into for the rest of however long it takes you to read them all. Head to chriswillex.com slash books. Download a copy. It is completely free. Thousands of people have already got theirs and the feedback's been great. Wasting people's lives, We're not wasting their lives, just just making them spend it on something that isn't Netflix and Love Island. Go and get a copy today, Chriswillex.com slash books. In other news, this episode is brought to you by Boohoo Man. I have discovered my favorite product on their entire website, and it is their Active Skinny Joggers. Might seem like a weird thing to get from Boohoo Man, but they are, without a doubt, the most comfortable and best-fitting joggers I've ever had. And with the 40% off code, MW40, They are £20 for a two-pack, or £21 for a pack of two pairs of joggers, one in black and one in grey. Like You need these in your life. They're super comfortable. If you're travelling, lounging, I'm wearing them to train in as well on the days when it's a little bit less hot. Their active skinny joggers are outrageous. Plus... Their whole range is awesome. If you're going away on holiday, if you need a new wardrobe, if you're updating stuff to go back to work or to go on nights out or do whatever it is, reintegrate into the real world after a bunch of time off just wearing shorts and a shirt on, on Zoom, Boohoo Man is the only place that you need to go. The range is massive and it's already super cheap with an extra 40% off using the code MW40. Head to bit.ly slash manwisdom. That's B-I-T dot L-Y slash Man Wisdom. If you follow that link, you can then use the MW40 code to get you 40% off everything. So if you need to get a man in your life a present, even if that man in your life is you, bit.ly slash manwisdom and MW40 for 40% off everything from Boohoo Man. In other, other news, this episode is brought to you by Active Life RX. You can get out of pain and reclaim your fitness with a company that I trust to look after my training plan. If you've got niggles, discomfort, pain, injuries, whatever it's been. Maybe they've been around for so long that you think that they're like a part of your body now, There is hope for you. You just need to work with a company that actually knows what they're doing. The coaches at Active Life are understanding, which I really like. If you're trying to get yourself out of pain or if you're trying to reach a level of fitness that you haven't been at for quite a while, you don't want someone that feels like a taskmaster. You want someone that feels like they're supporting you and pushing you at the same time. And that's the atmosphere that I get whenever I speak to the guys at Active Life. They have taken over 10,000 people living on six different continents from pain into fitness, including five CrossFit Games champions, professional baseball players, rugby players, and Olympic medalists. If you've been thinking that you really want to get back into the gym or take your current training to the next level, you can get a free consultation call with them today, no obligation. Just have a chat with one of the coaches and talk to them about what you want and see what they can do for you. Head to bit.ly rxwisdom. That's bit.ly slash No obligation. Have a chat with them, see what they can do for you, and take it from there. But now, it's time for the wise and wonderful Christopher Mason. Christopher Mason, welcome to the show.
1: Pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me.
0: Do you know how I knew that me and you were going to get on just fine? It's when huh. I found out that you're also a fan of Neil Stevenson's Seven Eves.
1: Yes, uh, the five books review probably you read, I imagine. Yes, yes. which was, uh, if, if your audience hasn't read it, it, is really a phenomenal book, but is also terrifying in a lot of ways. But I think it it is related to some of the things that I just wrote in my book, Yeah, in terms of thinking about what happens at the cusp of survival for our species and what do we do and how do we survive. So, yeah, it's a great book. Uh, i'm sure it will be a movie at some point too it has to be it's basically written as if it it's is already so a movie.
0: good the the first line the moon explodes yeah yeah but the first exactly. line of the book the moon explodes so anyway like how how do you get started thinking about creating a roadmap for us to leave earth
1: it comes from really a, a place of hope i actually think the i'm a humanist i i like people there's a lot of things that people i do bad but there's a lot that we do that's great in terms of poetry and music and science and the ability for humans to create things that will exist long past their own lifetime. And so, I mean, the most obvious example is people have kids all the time, but even historically when people have built cathedrals that we knew would take generations to build uh, and also even just having science projects that can sometimes uh, be multi-generational climate change is a good example. We, you know, we're not doing it that well yet, and we could do it wrong there too, but uh, there are many places where Humanity has a lot that I think that is extraordinary and I think it's worth preserving as long as possible So I've always thought that and as I became a scientist. I thought well if we're really gonna Exist as humans for a long long time uh, We have to think about what is that time and then how do we do it and the time frame? I think about a lot is the, the end of the earth because Well once you read about that it's gonna happen It's that's something I, I never forgot so I think well if we only have a finite time Uh, in this solar system, well, what are we doing to eventually get ready that we, at some point we'll have to go? It's not if we go, it's when we go. Uh, And so I want to think about what can we do technically, ethically, and uh, really sociologically to do to make that happen.
0: The timeline has actually been moved up a little bit sooner as well, right? Originally, most people think that we've got about 4 billion years until the sun's going to expand and engulf the Earth, but in less than 1 billion years, it'll be getting pretty hot. A lot of oceans will evaporate and life's going to be very very difficult so the timeline has been hurried along to say the least
1: yeah absolutely so this is and i actually got really sad when i was writing the book at the end i thought well i'm writing kind of like what happens in the far far future for humanity or what could happen what i hope happens and it i always have that number in my head like well we have you know four and a half billion years is a long time and a billion years is still a pretty long time too but it was the equivalent of imagining that you might live to be 100 years old and someone telling you one day, no, you're only going to be to 20. That's you're going to have about a fifth of the lifespan you thought you would have. Because by then, the, it, as you just said, the oceans will begin to boil. The luminescence of the sun gets so, so much more that it gets probably too hot to leave her. We could maybe live underground, but it's going to be tough. So I got really sad. I came downstairs and told my wife. I was like, oh, I just and she's like, what's wrong? And I said, well, I just thought we had more time. And she said, you know, a billion years is still a long time. I said, yeah, it is, but it's certainly a lot less than I thought we had. So I was a bit sad finishing the book and thinking about it. But it underscores the fact that that's the maximum time, right? It, it assumes we don't have an asteroid hit us, some other global global calamity, um, you know, some plague, for example. We just had a plague. So something else could happen and really decimate humanity before then. And I find that sad because, as I state, I think we have an ethical obligation to preserve not only our species, but... All life that we can see because we're the only ones that knows it can become extinct and so this gives us a unique uh, responsibility because we're the only ones that is aware of it
0: just dig into that a little bit more for me please because you talk about ecosystems and there's these typical sort of three groups of of animals and then you kind of class us as this fourth species sort of a a guardian mm-hmm. of mm-hmm. the earth galaxy type thing
1: yes it, it is kind of like a guardian of the galaxy so i, I recognize that is a great uh, comic book that's been around for decades and now movies and it is. But it's interesting in the original comic books. Uh, I've actually never read them, but I've seen some of the movies. But I've now since read some of them uh, after the, my books come out and after seeing some of the movies, they uh, it's similar concept is that the, they're guarding, you know, truth and justice and, and sort of the na- nature of the universe and life. But some of the concepts are the same where we need, in some sense, protectors uh, of life in the universe quite literally guardians of the galaxy so i actually really wrestled with what would be the best term when i was writing it as well are we are we shepherds are we uh sherpas are we guardians are we protectors what's the best word and guardians the best thing i could come up with because it it describes what our role is is to really serve as protectors uh of, of life itself and the complexity of life which again as far as we know is unique in the entire universe so far and so i i think you know those three the three things people normally think of are producers consumers uh and decomposers like in the environment is either something eating you or you're eating it or it's decomposing you basically and throughout all of history that's what we kind of view all ecosystems as but i think uh for us we are we we can see the ecosystem we understand its fragility and we can actually protect it which no other entity can do that's been previously described so i think we are distinct and i would hope that even if ai takes over someday they would also have sentience and might view the value see the value of complexity of thought or life uh, or in any matter, really, whether it's uh, carbon-based or otherwise. So I talk about that a little bit too, that I'm I'm agnostic towards matters complexity. If it's uh, carbon-based, silicon-based, hopefully they all have the same sense of guardianship.
0: It's interesting because the hubris that can be quite quickly attributed to thinking that we're supposed to be in charge of This little corner of the universe is quite an easy accusation to make. Who do we think that we are? The planet was fine before we got here. The planet will be fine after we leave. Well, no, it won't. There's a lot of existential risks for us to get past. And even if we make it past all of them, there is this huge full stop coming at the end of the sentence, and that's going to be the sun. Uh, it's, It's really interesting to think about whether or not I just like the fact that we are the only corner of the universe that appears to have illuminated it with consciousness, and we right. are not cargo aboard Spaceship Earth, we're crew, and we can right. actually yeah. direct its it, it, and everything else that's on it, right? We can save the rest of the cargo. And I think right. from that, naturally, you run forward with this is a, a, a compulsive duty. This provides us with a level of responsibility that we need to bear uh, seriously. Yeah
1: because yeah, we're the only ones that can. And, and, and to your point, some people say, you know think we're we're just going to screw it up." Is the most common response I like get it. is that this sort of going to do lack- it
0: better than the fucking tigers do. Give me a break. Come on,
1: <laughs> or or, be- or better than you know, the the sun is not going to be a good shepherd. It'll engulf the whole planet, right? So. It is, that's the thing that, to me, it derives from a simple, it's a cosmological fact. Like, it's not my opinion that we need to eventually leave this planet. Like, until we can survive in a, a fusion, you know, state with the sun as entities, and if, unless that happens, we have to leave. So it's not a might we, should we, can we. We and everything else on here is, is gone. And so I think, and, and there's even some people who push back on that more and say, well, maybe it should just be extinguished. Maybe all life should be extinguished anyway. Uh, and, they, and they're not even taken by the uh, this because I mean, it presupposes an inherent value of life, right? Which some people still could reject and say, "Well, life is there's matter over here and there's matter over there. Is life really that special?" And and I still, which I I think is is somewhat axiomatic that I shouldn't have to you know make that obvious to someone. It seems pretty straightforward. But even there, when I've debated this with some philosophy professors and other people just on the street, sometimes to convince them, I say that th- there is an ability to you know serve as this self-awareness and serve as these caretakers that no other matter can do. Like, I think it actually, the reason I think it's hopeful is because it pushes away this indifferent state of most of the matter in the universe. And it's something that does have a concern, which I think has value at the very least for survival. Uh, It's just self uh, self um, interest, but it is, it's, you know, it's projecting our, you know, our ability on other species. And it does involve hubris, but the hubris doesn't obviate its necessity. I think.
0: Well, we locally reverse entropy, right, in our current state. We actually make a little bit of order from chaos. And that's really cool. Like, if Even if you were to take a a really fundamental view and say there's nothing particularly special about life, you would say, well, we tend to take care of more unique environments because we understand that there is something inherently special about that by its very nature. There is more that isn't that than that that is. So therefore, you look across the entire galaxy as far as we've seen, and as seen. of yet, we have yep. to presume that we are the only section of the universe that has a green planet, that's got life, that's able to be intelligent, and so on and so forth. So yeah, I mean, you can be as axiomatic as you want and, and try and take it back to first principles. But like, regardless yep. of your value for human life, this corner of the universe simply seems to be more unique than others. And yep. therefore, why wouldn't you protect it?
1: Right, right. Is among literally the most unique thing in the universe is what we're what we are and what we're standing on. And so that at least is is interesting and I think worth protecting. and uh, and to your and I mentioned this also in the book that there's you could argue gravity somewhat reduces entropy by bringing things together. And as most people probably know the second law of thermodynamics, entropy will just always probably increase unless the universe ends in a big collapse uh, there again from gravity. So that's what eventually bring the entropy back all altogether. But short of gravity, the only other thing that organizes matter in a in a negative entropy fashion is life itself, right? So it is extraordinary that we're out we, and we're doing it in ourselves. You don't have to ask yourselves to put together peptides to make proteins, to synthesize DNA, to sort just of just along
0: for the ride, man. Yeah, yeah,
1: they're just doing all the microbes in us and on us. You know, they're doing all their their jobs. Uh, it is extraordinary, and 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 we're just at the tip of the iceberg of what we've learned about the complexity of life, the biochemistry. Its adaptability, our ability to even engineer life or even just understand the basic genetics of life is just really getting started in the past couple of decades. So, uh, the, part of the enthusiasm of the, of the book is it, we're really at this, really, the launch has just started. Like the, the engines of discovery have just been on for a couple of decades and have already found extraordinary things. So, uh, it was exciting to write.
0: What's deontogenic ethics?
1: Uh, so, I tried to frame this in the book as. As a principle, of, uh, because I really want to make it a moral argument is that why should we do this? And we just kind of covered some of this, of course. But I think I've been really taken by this ever since I took a philosophy class in college, that there's historically been two views of ethics. And one is uh, basically the um uh, Immanuel Kant's categorical imperative which is the you know imagine if something that you did became a rule for everybody how would the world look and then you imagine the world and think would this be good or bad the most common example is if you steal a candy bar when you're a kid your mom will say well you shouldn't steal a candy bar think if everyone stole a candy bar then there'd be no candy bars and you think oh, okay i get it so even a kid can understand that uh, but this is also sometimes contradicted or, or battled with uh utilitarian ethics which is the greatest good for the greatest number we try to calculate what does one action do and, and the consequences of it, as well as what other people are doing and try and get to a place of, you know, the greatest good for greatest number overall. Uh, there's a lot of challenges with both of those ethical frameworks is, you know, how do you measure uh, what some actions might do if only some of the population does it or what for the greatest good for greatest number? How do you quantify the good or the bad? And it depends on where you are and who you are, of course. Uh, And even there's there's what's the consequence of your reaction, not the intent. And so there's a lot of ethical challenges. But uh, that is the backdrop. I kept thinking, well, what's what's something that's before all of that? I think the most essential duty. uh, And one thing I like about Kant is he talks a lot about what is our duty to other humans. I think we actually have a duty that even is antecedent towards our duty to each other, which is a duty just to do the existence itself. Like you can't have an ethical debate if you're not alive to have it. So I think the duty. Uh, Proceeds it as to just for existence, as I like to say, existence precedes the essence of anything you want to do. So our our genetic duty, our, like our duty to propagate ourselves as well as to ensure livelihood of the things on which we depend uh, is the minimal duty just to survive. So it's a, it a genetic duty part one. The other part of it though, is once you realize that and you're self-aware as a species, as we are, you then have a duty towards, I think, serve as their protectors. Because once you've become aware of extinction, you can then actuate it or you can prevent it. And so I think uh, th- this is the, the other part of the genetic duty is to preserve the complexity of life and life itself. And so I, I, I frame that out as, as duties that are even before any other duty because uh, everything else depends on them. So um, I call the deontogenic or the, the genetic uh, duty, basically, and, and the ethical framework around that. Cool. I'm proposing an entirely new ethical framework because why not? I don't know. I just... Oh, fuck uh, it.
0: I mean, you, you're also trying to get us <laughs> to another star system within yeah. half a millennia, so just... So why not rewrite rewrite yeah. everything else about ethics as well at the same time <laughs> all right what so we're, we're, what's the end goal take me 500 years into the future what are you hoping that we're able to do
1: so if all goes well and as described you know in, in fun and and it, little parts of the book are kind of playful where i talk about green humans that have chloroplasts in their skin and could be big huge plants which is fun to write about and the, the calculations that would need would necessitate the changes to cells. so at the end of all that uh, i'm hoping that we have What's interesting, in the book, I don't presume any advances in necessarily propulsion or or genetics beyond what we know today, with things that actually work today that we've deployed in clinical trials that exist uh, in astronaut studies that we're doing as we speak. So just small extensions of what we're doing or small tweaks and then project reasonably 500 years out, I believe that we would have enough knowledge of the risk to the body and ways to mitigate them and even to repair cells or to even genetically protect the cells. We'll, we'll come back to that that you could survive the trip out through interstellar space to another planet. And actually, we'll have enough exoplanets discovered that we would be able to know where to go. And so at the end of 500 years, I hope that we will have done testing and then begin to send people out on what are called generation ships, which actually is a 100-year-old a idea. What if multiple generations live and die on the same ship on their way to a new star? But 100 years ago, even 20 years ago, it was pure science fiction because we knew of We had no good uh, substrate of genetics to to understand, or we only had a handful of exoplanets discovered, all of them impossible for life as we know it today. But today, we already have several hundred planets that are likely habitable exoplanets, meaning they're outside of our solar system. We have a pretty in-depth knowledge of human genetics and microbial genetics and ways to modify cells to keep them alive, to resist radiation, to maybe get new tweaks and even new uh, abilities. And I describe a lot of them in the book. And so it means after 500 years, I think we would have... Really, and we're basically on phase two of the 500-year plan. The first 10 years just finished, and I wrote about kind of this as a template about when I started my lab, and uh, we just finished phase one, which which went quite well, I'd say. The first 10 years have, have gone quite swimmingly. I'll be dead for the vast majority of that 500-year plan. I'll probably die around somewhere between age 80 to 110 maybe, somewhere in there, I'm guessing, if all goes well. you know. But, but then at that point, we'll be able to head towards a new star and and hopefully then become not just interplanetary but interstellar in our state.
0: Who's the architect that built that cathedral in Barcelona that's still being built now? Um,
1: you know, I don't know which one. Oh, so it's,
0: hu- it's this huge, beautiful cathedral. Anyway, it's this really famous artist whose name escapes me. I went to go and see it and do the tour, which shows how bad my memory is. Uh, and, and he's done the same thing that you've done. He created this ridiculously long, elaborate plan. And then 100 years after his death, everyone's still having to adhere to it. And they're all still away <laughs> doing the work. And he's, he's long gone. He's, yeah, he's chilling. Um, or
1: even the the first uh the lease for the land where the Guinness brewery was the first lease that was signed uh, by, Alec, uh, by 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 St. guess by Guinness uh, the first brewer was for nine thousand years. He said, "I want a nine thousand year lease," and they gave it to him. They said, "Okay, uh, sure." So said, you know the brew, the beer is still being brewed there. It's still uh, uh, we've only been you know, one hundred fifty years or so. I say so? like
0: 8,850 eight, 8, years still to go. Yes. Right. yes, it's a lot of Guinness. A well lot done, of Guinness. well done, Granddad. Uh, all right, so. What, how much does space wreck the human body?
1: It's, it's unpleasant, especially in the first few days and where the uh, astronauts get what's often called puffy face where they look uh, a lot, basically, because your body is built to push fluid, you know, essentially uh, up because you're used to having gravity trying to push it down. So it has to keep circulation going. Suddenly you don't have that downward force. So generally about two liters of fluid goes from your legs and lower torso to your upper body, which makes you kind of puffy. And, uh, you know, essentially, eventually the lymphatic system and the body adapts and you get mostly back to normal. But there, there's, you know, just uh, lymphatic and sort of fluid shifts changes as soon as you get up into space. Sorry, radiation... just to
0: interject there, man. Like, isn't that crazy? The fact that no human in all of history ever went to space, ever existed in zero gravity, yeah. and yet our body is able to adapt itself like it takes a bit of time and you look like a basketball for a little while or whatever but that's so fucking cool it's amazing and i think we uh and
1: the adaptability and plasticity of the body is extraordinary and and so writ large it's rough on the body but the body recovers we saw this with scott kelly with other astronauts we published a study on 59 astronauts just a few months ago. And, you know, everyone has a different reaction to it. We can see some people have huge spikes of cortisol as soon as they get into space, and you can see the body kind of freaking out, saying, holy crap, I'm in space. Hence that motion of, I'm used to gravity. The history of my entire species is used to gravity, and I don't have any right now, so what the heck? But uh, the body adapts. And then we can see some people have the spike in cortisol, and then it comes right back down. Actually, Scott Kelly was cool as a cucumber after the first couple days. But other astronauts have the spike, and it stays pretty high. So they actually uh are are still kind of adapting. And, you know, Scott is a veteran. Uh the astronaut Kelly has been up there four, five times now. And he uh, you know, so the, some of this I think he's gotten used to it. But it is extraordinary that the body can get into a situation it's never seen before and adapt quite well. A great example of this though is even our adaptive immune system. Like we can see a pathogen that our body by definition is new and has never seen before. And you know, essentially interact with it, engage it, digest it, create T cells and antibodies that will recognize it and then be ready for when they see it again. So it's really this beautiful component of bio, of human biology and many other species that have adaptive immune systems to be so responsive to the environment uh and we did it because we had to be because there's because the microbes uh reproduce faster than we do and they're mutating faster because they have crappier uh polymerases that copy their dna or rna so uh we kind of had to make it that way but in any case so what the, the, the question of what happens to the body you have a lot of the fluid shifts and the body uh, adapts to that. There is increased radiation. There's, of course, uh, you're in a more isolated space. You're in a place with less people, so there's changes in your microbial environment. There are just hazards uh, cognitively. You're in a, a very stressful environment. Again, far from friends and family, and and it it's uh, so it, it's 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 tough on the body. The, but the two biggest things we worry about are the change in gravity fields. And then also the um, the radiation. So and it's important to say it's not that there's really technically zero gravity because there's still plenty of gravity. You're just at the place where you're falling with the space station at the same rate. Uh, So it feels like zero gravity, but you still have gravity. You're just falling. So uh, technically it's called change in gravity fields, you could say, uh, as I was experienced. So those are the two big things that drive a lot of the changes. And so what happens is your microbes change in your gut. We see a lot of spikes in the genes that activate for the immune system, especially as soon as you get up there. The body they just uh, think is,
0: that you're under attack
1: it's it, it, it basically all this molecular signatures appear as if the body is on high alert thinks it's maybe attack an infection it's not clear but a lot of the same signatures for those medical events spike up when you get into space and even more so when you get back to earth and and a lot of these same what are called cytokines which are these molecular kind of signals that cells send to each other about what's happening and should they launch a response an immune response for example these are heavily activated in flight and then also when you get back to earth So that is a consistent feature we've seen for all the astronauts is kind of immune sort of uh, signature and stress. And even, you know, there's because of that stress, it's not necessarily good or bad. It really depends on the astronaut because your immune system being on high alert could be good because then you actually uh, could, could, you know, adapt and be aware for any potential pathogen. The bad thing, though, is if your immune system starts to attack itself. Essentially, this is what autoimmune diseases uh, can do. Uh, and and really wreak, wreak havoc on the body. we don't see that for astronauts, but just just to make the point that just having uh, activation of everything is not necessarily a good thing, but it's not necessarily bad either. And we've seen for a lot of the things that changed in flight, they almost all went back to normal within a few months being back on earth in terms of the genes, the microbes, these cytokines, these things that changed they all were pretty relatively quickly back to normal uh, in a matter of either days like or or, uh, or weeks and in some cases a few months but the other thing i should for example telomeres got longer in space so the these little these these still basically bookends at the end of your chromosomes that keep your dna packaged and safe they actually got longer in space which at first we thought was maybe just something weird about astronaut kelly but now we've seen it in every astronaut that we've looked at This work with susan bailey uh so far it's 12 out of 12 for the astronauts that we've looked at their telomeres get longer in space we think it's two things that are driving this is that they there is a little bit of consistent low dose radiation that they're experiencing which we've seen if you do this for other organisms like uh, uh, malaria, plasmodium falciparum, their telomeres also get longer if you do low-dose radiation. Uh, which do they live been, longer? We, uh, they, don't, well, it, they don't live. No, they did not because eventually it went away. But after the radiation was stopped, it went back. So it's two things. You're, it's an, a, a bit of a response to the cells to uh, turn on telomeres to elongate, elongate the, the actual telomeres. And also we think it's killing out the low-dose radiation is going to kill out and remove some of the cells that were close to dying anyway, so that your average telomere length goes longer because you're getting rid of the cells that were about to, that had the shorter telomeres anyway. Uh, so it's those two things together, uh, but then it goes back to normal. You know, once you get back uh, from space, then, you know, uh, then it goes quickly right back to normal.
0: That's an interesting one. That's like a radiation hormesis effect thing that you've got going on yep. there almost, that you, you're stripping away the, the unused ones. All right. What's the yep. longest anyone's ever spent in space in a single S- go?
1: In a single, it was a cosmonaut who did it, I believe it was 540 days is the record. Uh, I have to double check that, uh, but I believe it was, it was a cosmonaut. So the, the record holder, so Scott Kelly went up for 340 days. There was, uh, the longest is about a year and a half, or it was around 540 days if I recall, was a cosmonaut. And so that is the, the human record so far. But there are plans afoot to try and break that record in the next four or five years if all goes well.
0: Roll the clock forward for me. What you've identified so far and the challenges that those astronauts have faced and cosmonauts uh i don't want to be Anglocentric. centric um that
1: <laughs> these and Typhoon, too. there's some chinese astronauts now yes sorry. Sorry. <laughs> um
0: that these people that go into space have had to face that's limited to a year and a half let's double that or say three years to sort of 10 years is there something that you can predict that's going to be a challenge for people to face in space there that doesn't manifest within a year and a half
1: This is a great question, something that's like endlessly debated at NASA meetings, uh, uh, aerospace meetings, medicine meetings, is because, uh, you know, the short answer is, I think I think we'll have seen already most of the significant changes that occur in flight or to the body from these year and year and a half long missions. Uh, Truth be told, we don't know. There might be something that only gets really bad when you've been in zero G or, or, you know, loss of gravity for uh, two years or three years, and it's just there's some unique feature. You know, I don't, I don't, I can't think of what that would be, but it's hard to speculate on something we've never observed before. So it, it is a, it is a extrapolation, and it's imperfect. But I think we've seen most of what the body does uh, in space flight, and what we'll likely see again for longer missions. But we just think we'll see more. We do see damaged DNA, for example, coming out in urine. So you can see fragments of the DNA coming out. You can see calcium. You can see the loss of bone density in. It's coming out of the body, almost if it's you know, being, uh, you know, just... extruded uh, away. extruded like as you can see the loss. So it's really striking to see that loss just coming out of the body. So I think we'll just see more of those. I don't think we'll suddenly see dramatically new differences in, in the urine that we're getting uh, and the molecules in the urine, I, I hope. But we'll we'll find out soon enough.
0: Presumably further and further away from the sun as well, less magnetic protection, less magnetic protection from the earth, from radiation, from solar flares, from other bits and pieces like that big bursts yep. of radiation as you get further away from our solar system, that's par for the course.
1: Yep, it'd be a bigger problem. So the Van Allen Belt there, we're living in this wonderful protective magnetosphere, and once you get outside of that, uh, you're, you're much more you're know, at risk. And so there's a lot of space weather satellites and researchers that are constantly tracking sunspots and solar activity. Hopefully we could warn some of the astronauts before it were to hit them, because we have enough time uh, before it would get there. Uh, but, you know, it, you know, but even there, they go into a slightly more protected chamber of a spacecraft. It's not going to be like under living under 20 feet of rock or something. Right. So it's going to be a uh, limited protection. But we're hoping, you know, there are ways to do electromagnetic protection. Um, and some things I talk about in the book are, are genetic protection tools where you can activate genes temporarily, for example, DNA repair genes, and then turn them back off. And so, again, this is not yet being tried in, in humans, It's mostly just in cell lines and in animal models. But we know that technically it's possible and it would have to be really rigorously demonstrated in clinical trials for safety and efficacy, but at least we know conceptually it's possible to to do such a defense.
0: Your suggestion is to kind of add in either genetic modifications or epigenetic modifications that can be switched on and switched off, kind of in the Mm -hmm. same way as at the moment people that go to space have uh, protective suits. So you need a particular augmentation to you as a human in order to survive a non-typical environment. And mm-hmm. your suggestion from genetics is just to provide the same, but internally as opposed to externally. Why do you think this is a very touchy subject for people? Is it just naturalistic fallacy? Is it something sacred about the current human nature?
1: Uh, both, are, both are active threads of thought where people say, uh, you should never adjust the natural world because if it's natural, it's perfect. Uh, Although, as we've already described earlier, uh, if it's natural and it's and it's only staying here, it will not be perfect. It'll be gone. So
0: smallpox wasn't uh, too good either.
1: Yeah. And and yeah, no one has problems saying let's eradicate uh, severe pathogens like no one's saying save the covid. Right. That's not happening. (laughs) (laughs) uh, There are certain times where we decide and rightly that there is a deontogenic uh, framework that's being violated by another organism. Right. In this case, if some organism is inhibiting the ability of another organism to to live at all or especially. To serve as guardians or shepherds of other life forms, then that is uh, is is bad in that ethical framework. It is something that you should remove. It's actually doing the right thing by getting rid of a existential threat to you. Now you have to balance that because sometimes the threat to one organism is helping for another. So there are ch- places where it's much more complicated, and there may even be some place where smallpox is helpful to something somewhere, but not that we know of. But you have to make the value judgment. And under that the deontogenic framework, it's it's a no brainer. It's really easy to say, oh, that we is is uh, ethically bad. And so the net, the natural, some of the, the pushback on it is, you know, how, how could we make sure it's safe? How could we make sure that, you know, that this is uh, efficacious, which, but we do this all the time with clinical trials for CAR T cells or various chimeric antigen receptor therapies where we modify T cells, infuse them into patients. We do this at the hospital I'm at now, as well as other, many others I'm uh, working with. Uh, this is just part of clinical trials. So you, you do it slowly, you do it carefully. You, you, you make sure before you roll out any therapy that it has uh, really met good clinical guidelines and that the benefits outweigh any of the possible risks. Uh, and so we're not there yet at all for some of these therapies I describe in the book, but but we're pretty close on other ones. We're massively modifying and CRISPR editing cells and then putting them back into patients uh, to cure disease and in some cases extraordinarily well. So I, I think
0: what's the most well, successful seen... case of that that you think happened so far? one of
1: the so outside of the, the immunotherapies where you have mo- modified t-cells or natural killer cells that then grown up and reinfused back in some of them CRISPRed or otherwise modified with other receptor changes those are really extraordinary i talked about those for a while in the book but then some of the other therapies these epigenetic therapies where you can even turn back on a gene uh, inside you that had been turned off previously so one of the best examples of this is treating for sickle cell disease uh, it might even be useful for beta thalassemia is Basically, there you have hemoglobin is wrong, is faulty. Your adult hemoglobin has a problem. So, the concept for the therapies, which are being in, in the clinic now, is well, okay, when you're a fetus, when you're much younger, you did have fetal hemoglobin, which is a different kind of molecule that carries oxygen, actually much better, really, than adult hemoglobin. But it gets turned off when, right after you're born, and it just stays off. So, for the rest of your life, you have this other version of a gene that makes hemoglobin that's just sitting there kind of quietly. Latent. And Yeah. And then what you do is actually uh, you can get rid of the enhancer that's controlling it, keep it off, and then you turn it back on. It's actually been in the clinical trials, looks like it's extraordinarily successful because you get a good version of the gene back activated. So I think this idea, uh, say if you did that for certain genes for for DNA repair that that might be useful for spaceflight, you know, again, it's just a different gene target. It's just in a different environment. But here we'd say because we think the risk is so great that this benefit would overcome that uh so that's one of my favorite examples and it's really you know it depends on things again 20 years ago it'd be science fiction we didn't even know all the genes in the genome where they were what they were we kind of had a first draft not really the tools the technologies to do this editing also were very nascent uh and now you can CRISPR things at when we have high school students doing CRISPR. it's uh you can almost CRISPR in your kitchen if you want to you actually can there's home kits you can if you want to so it's crazy it's an amazing time
0: are you working with dr david sinclair on this uh, a bit, actually,
1: on some of the, uh, we've chatted a bit on some of the uh, longevity, uh, uh, basically cells he's looking at, so looking at the epigenetic changes to what happens for some of the treatments he's thinking. Yeah, so we are, we've we actually been back-to-back at, at, like, three conferences recently where we end up just being in the agenda. Uh, and usually I'll speak first and say, here's what we need to do for the next 500 years. And then he'll say, and here's how I hope oh, we'll live. Yeah, 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 yeah. A
0: good,
1: uh, fun pairing, actually, at conferences recently.
0: It's been fun. It's been great. Yeah, he's, he's a good mate. He's, um... The work that he's doing is fantastic. It's so cool to see that. So yeah, the thing that I've got in my head around people that may have a challenge to do with gene editing is a combination of ignorance about the fact that we're already doing it um, an anchoring bias against what we have right now and not understanding what could be that fixing something that's wrong, i.e. a change of the status quo, isn't the same as improving something that we don't have, but that just comes down to how do you judge welfare. And then it's just scope neglect. It's just not understanding what the outcome could be if we don't get this right. And this is something from reading Toby Ord's The Precipice that really sort of force-fed me an understanding if you fully see yourself as a steward of humanity and as someone that's supposed to leave the world in a better place than when you found it, you can't Mm -hmm. just be thinking globally. You need to think pan-generationally. So it's not just about everybody on the planet right now. It's everybody on the planet forever and everybody that could then come from the planet thereafter as well. So yeah, I I think when you you fully internalize that, any argument that isn't, we need to do everything that we can to gobble up as much galactic real estate as is possible and to make ourselves right for that kind of by whatever means we can and it's interesting that the sort of deontogenic argument um y- you need to have something more concrete to hold on to because you get into questions of what are we saving you know right. how far can we change ourselves whilst still being ourselves is a question mm-hmm. that you inevitably end up encountering. And I suppose that sort of human values, the fundamentals of what we are to be human, the genetics, so on and so forth, kind of that's the the ground, the, the foundation upon which everything else grows out.
1: It, it is, but also it can change. I would say, I mean, the the idea that there's a, a perfect state that humanity is now uh, is fallacious, right? And it's just not true. The humans... Uh, are in a state where we are now, whatever this is. But it's more, it by it always changes and, and it will continue to change. Evolution is not static, so it it, it we're all evolving as we speak, right? The best example recently is that now we can drink milk as adults, but twenty thousand years ago we probably probably couldn't. Anyone could or barely could. So the selection for a pretty interesting adaptive trade for adults based on diet is, is really recent and interesting. Even just, uh, you know, the, how people have different hair, eye and skin color is a reflection of a few hundred thousand years of migration around the planet. has already led to really dramatic changes. So we're continuing to evolve. And I think that even if we evolve to a place where there's literally a different species, like say someone, there's people on Mars for 20,000 years and at some point they can no longer reproduce with people on Earth. That may happen, but it's not necessarily a bad thing. they are just more people. And also... Uh, i describe in the book a concept of planetary liberty or even that cellular liberty is that you're no longer subject to the whims of the genetic uh, deal that you got as an embryo you can fix things that are broken or even modify things uh, that you want improved very much as a right as what your genetic rights are as an individual is that you should have full autonomy and control over your dna which doesn't really exist uh in most legislatures or in sort of any laws anywhere but we we have versions of this we have reproductive rights We have uh, rights about privacy. We think about this a lot in, you know, in current laws, but nothing about the right to do something with your own cells or your own DNA. But I think that very much is your right. And this includes the ability to live on more than one planet. So if you do your genome editing accurately and, and correctly and broadly, you'll increase your planetary liberty. I would actually think it would be sad if you had to engineer humans so much that you send them to Mars and like, okay, good, congrats. You can live on Mars now. We've made it so you're perfectly suited for it. But you can never come back to Earth. I would find that to be a technological failure. We, would, we should, if possible, expand the number of places on which you can live, including planets. Uh, that's an expansion of liberty. Liberty gives you a choice to do anything you'd want. And so if we do it right, you could you know, uh, expand the planetary liberty, I say, or cellular liberty of which planet you can live on.
0: Why should we take a bath in yoghurt?
1: Ah, so I um find it to be very soothing. I describe that there's some little nuggets in the book that come up uh, here and there, like uh, taking a bath in yogurt. I uh I I have coated myself in yogurt. Uh, it sometimes be um. Is it a only recreational wine. thing? I do it when I'm hungry and I want to sit in a bathtub full of something. I find a bathtub full of yogurt is great. You can uh you know dip a spoon in and then just eat it. Uh, A bathtub full of barbecue sauce is even better. I highly recommend it. Or maybe uh, I could think of, you know, um, other sauces maybe in the UK. You could think of, um, you know.
0: Not hot sauce though. I imagine that's probably uncomfortable for a while.
1: It's tough on the mucous membranes. I I don't remember that. I don't don't, don't recommend that yet.
0: (laughs) So you talk about humans that could have green skin and about this uh, other different ways that we could try and modify our DNA so that we can survive in space. What I think is a more interesting question than that, or at least for me, are the ethics around what it means to travel for a long time. Is it ethical to say that you can make a decision to go on a generation ship and impound the next 20 generations of your progeny to live, to be born to live and to die all within a metal can that's floating
1: From a deontogenic ethics framework, it is 100% ethical because it is what enables us to survive long term along those goals. So it's easy easy for me to say yes. And that assumes though that that's what the goal of the generation ship is. There's a chance that maybe the ship would fail and you get to the new planet and it turns out not to be as good as you think and then everyone perishes. Uh, That would be really unfortunate, but it would still represent an ethical decision to have made that choice on that mission with the information you had at the time. So I think but it, it raises questions of consent. And by definition, the children and grandchildren in that mission get zero consent over 20 generations. But, you know, but here, too, we uh, we there's two two things I'd say to that is, uh, you know, when people say, well, how, how can you do this? One is I'd say uh, it's ethical. But the two other responses I'd add to that are is we ch- people do this all the time. Parents move across the world to find a new place when they're when children are babies and the babies didn't get consent to move, say, from you know Tennessee to Alaska and live up in, in a cold tundra. Uh, the parents at some point just have to decide that's part of what parents do. Uh, and, you know, the other thing is we're already kind of on a big generation ship now. Like you can't go to another planet right now. We're just on Earth. It's a really big generation ship that's wonderful and nice and has lots of features. But this is a big ship that you can't leave that you're on right now. And it's just called Earth. It's, and uh, so it's not really that different in terms of type of of trip that we're taking. It's just a difference of uh, of the size of it, I'd say.
0: Yeah, I agree. It isn't a different of kind, it's a difference of degree. Yep, but the difference yep. of degree from an individual's level is it's a very, very large price to pay. Yeah, for sure. You know, yep. you didn't ask to be here, you didn't ask to be put on this ship. You know, we need some yep. serious advances in entertainment technology in order to be able to make a ship as yep. fun as Earth is. It's likely yep, yep. that there's going to be some suffering in the on the grand scale when we think about how Human civilization is going to work, even if you sort of add a utilitarian uh, sort of stint to this and you think, oh, well, maybe this particular generation ship with, let's say, t- t- 20,000 people, probably not, but let's say 20,000 people suffer on this generation ship in order to facilitate a trillion people on a new planet. Yeah. You go, well, like, th- that's a, a, a fair point. But yes. still uncomfortable for 20,000 people for whatever 400 still- years.
1: But you would maybe hope that they like if you and I do the math on the on the sort of trajectory and the uh, mechanics of spaceflight, it would be about, you know, twenty four hundred 400 years or so, hopefully. But what if, you know, those people on the ship felt like they were, you know, the chosen ones, if you will, or the ones that really were the vanguard of humanity and were enabling an entirely new epoch and, and maybe they would be excited by it and. And I think you're right also describing there, again, 20, 20 years ago, 20, 30 years ago, it would be really hard to imagine having the totality of all of human culture on video, like Netflix, for example, or these ways where you can watch almost any video that's ever been made or listen to any song that any human has ever created and have that indexed in with you. And you'd also still get updates because you can still send, of course, radio waves to the generation ship and get the latest episode of whatever comedy might be coming out or something. So you could still get updates while you're traveling farther from Earth. But you could be pretty well entertained with VR, you know, AR sort of but systems. Dude, if,
0: if the transhumanists get their way, you're going to be able to be in hereto unforeseen states of bliss constantly from the moment that you're born until the moment that you die. And if all that you need to be is this sort of vessel, vessel. Yeah, to, yeah. to continue human civilization, or or if David Sinclair gets his way, you only need one generation. Yeah, maybe, maybe
1: two, maybe two. And that's not so bad, right? Yeah, yeah that would be fabulous. Um yeah, he just posted a picture earlier today. He's uh, sent me a message. He's with some turtles. So he's yeah, like, turtles
0: I've seen that 50, as well. He's on
1: holiday. Three hundred years old, and and he's uh, you know, so there's precedent that life can live pretty long. I just humans have not quite done it beyond one twenty two yet. Uh, so I, I um, so I make again. You know, i in the book. It's very conservative. I make no assumptions that we will live to be twice as long, or that we'll have you know fusion reactor propulsion technology, which would of course make it shorter. There's a lot of things that would make it easier, faster, shorter, better. Uh, but I just take what we have, what we know today, and then run with it. Um, so it's very conservative in that regard. I'd say.
0: How are we going to get somewhere in four hundred years? What's the propulsion technology that you put into your models that exists?
1: Most of it's on either uh, existing liquid propulsion systems, at least to get us to orbit and off and running. There's a uh, solar sail technologies that, over time, you know, could pick up a, a fair amount of speed. Uh, and there are some you could imagine. I describe some of the the Star Starshot Initiative or the 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 break, uh, the the ability to like have lasers basically shoot at a target and propel you, but that doesn't quite work yet. But it's a cool idea. Um, so I I'd describe all the options that are currently, but it'd probably be liquid propulsion plus some solar sails uh, would get us. Would get, you know once you get up to speed because those are speeds again that exist today that we know we've had probes like the Parker Solar Probe. Uh, can actually get to a speed that would get us to being the closest star in about four to five hundred years. Yeah.
0: Has anyone had sex in space yet? Do you know this? Officially, no. Unofficially, Do you reckon they have? It. it uh, I think it's. Have you, has Scott it, Kelly told you any rumors from up on the ISS? He's, i bet he has i bet he has
1: <laughs> there's officially there has not been
0: <laughs> I, I can neither
1: confirm nor deny uh any rumors of any kind but um uh, they do have space private sex. <laughs> <Space sex. laughs> you know you gotta you gotta really practice your moves but there's nowhere to practice but in space you know so um so <laughs> officially
0: in space uh, no one can hear you sex But well, i mean obviously the um <laughs> what happens when you've got an embryo growing into a fetus into a baby and a birth in space what are the challenges that i mean do, is radiation a bigger concern for um children in utero
1: that would be uh, one of the key concerns we i mean we know that uh mice have been born in space so pregnant mice have been sent up and then uh, pups have been born Embry- human embryogenesis has proceeded out for days so we know it's, you can get to the early stages and get towards say gastrulation and early parts of developing the embryo look like they will work but we've never had a whole beginning to end embryogenesis towards birth of any creature yet in space uh, well uh, there's been some uh drosophila i should take that back so we know for example they have been able to uh, be born uh, in so but for a complex mammal Uh, all the way from beginning to end. Uh, We think it should work based on the data so far, but we don't know yet. Like, especially when you get outside the Van Allen belts and you go for a true interstellar trip, uh, the radiation is going to be a big concern. Uh, But but that being said, if we have all the tools uh, of molecular biology at our fingertips and we could, you know, resist the radiation, tweak it, modify the cells uh, as needed on the way, that might be one way to prevent some of the damage or to repair it if it's detected
0: what about social and mental issues in space let's say that we're not doing the transhumanism like just s- strap Probably. yourself into an iv of mdma for 80 years <laughs> and give birth <laughs> like david pierce is going to be upset but it doesn't really matter um, what about social issues and anyone that's read seven eve's it's fucked man like yeah. you know
1: the it, the president on, like, ends the, up with
0: a, a, a stake between her her lip a, Tongue and she yeah. can't speak, and everyone starts to end up being cannibals and eating each other's legs. Soft cannibalism, they call
1: it. Soft cannibalism. That that, that section of the book freaked me out totally, it, but it freaked me out because it seemed, you know, not too far from what might actually happen if you put people in these little ca- capsules and say you're stuck up there, and we you might be able to get somewhere in a few hundred years, and we're not sure. And the the moon exploded, and the Earth is being bombarded, and you can't even live on it, so we don't know. the The description of the book of the social breakdown and just the cognitive Law, loss of being tethered to any kind of reality—it it, it could very—it was—it was haunting because it seemed pretty, pretty pro, pro, probable. Like, you're like, well, I could really see this happening. And also, it was a bit of a critique on the social media world in which we live today, is that you can have people end up getting so caught up in, in concepts that they lead, lead them to do really insane things. They, thing. they like, literally for example,
0: eat, first, their they eat their own
1: legs. Eat their own legs because someone said it was a good idea, and say, well, okay, maybe that is a good idea. And like, well, I've got nothing <laughs> else. To do. <laughs> Or even like the Pizzagate scandal, the guy who heard that there was a sex ring that was at a a D.C. pizza restaurant, went there with an assault rifle just because he read about it and said, I'm going to go and start to to threaten people with a gun. And you're like, what's wrong with you? Like, how do you at some point, you know, uh, but but people you you can't underestimate um, the the ability for people to get, you know, to get lost, to get uh, confused, to get angry, get frustrated, despondent. uh, And and it's more pronounced in space for sure. So I, I think. That is one of the it's one listed as one of the key hazards by nasa of long-term space flight it's just this this cognitive uh, challenge and isolation uh matthias bosner studies this a lot at penn and he's you know we know it's a it's a, for sure a challenge that um you know entertainment is one way to address it mdma i'm not sure what you know we'll need you know i talk a bit in the book about games you know games are as old as humans are so maybe we can think about like new games that people can play with each other uh in in flight uh some sort of space football i'm not sure what, what it'll be but it's one of the biggest challenges and we'd have to either entertain people keep them distracted or somehow keep them sane but one of my favorite examples of this is there's these old uh, underground cities in turkey a lot of it was even before the ottoman empire where when there would be essentially wars back and forth across the the you know, sort of these steppes of turkey people would go underground and they'd you have these huge underground cities so they could hide from the army that was, att- was attacking they'd have two three five thousand people sometimes living underground but with that, when I did this tour a couple years ago in Turkey, one out of every about 10 rooms was actually a distillery to make wine. And the reason was because they had to figure out some way just to basically sedate the population so they wouldn't go insane because they're all living in caves for like two years. And I thought that was just, you know, for a couple of years. But, it, you know, so one solution is just keep everyone drunk the whole time. We've tried that as humanity before, and it seemed to work in that context.
0: Talk me through the Mars expedition that hopefully probably within what the next maybe Twenty years, we're going to have boots on Mars. Yep,
1: probably by twenty twenty thirty five, twenty thirty three, maybe. So it's soon, pretty
0: soon. Yeah. Do you think that we are further ahead technologically or further ahead genetically in terms of our preparation for this? Like, if the technology was available right now, could we go genetically? And if the gene, if the genetics was available right now, could we go technologically?
1: I think technology is ahead right now in terms of. Um, we, we can definitely get there, uh, and the landing will be hard. There's, of course, a really rough track record for anything that's been sent to Mars. A lot of them have crashed or not made it. It is far away, but the uh, JPL, the group at NASA that designs a lot of the rockets and rovers, has done an extraordinary job. So I think we can get there, land there, and even survive there. Uh, but the genetic, you know, deploying genetic technologies for protection or novel therapeutics or, or pharmaceutical agents are all still really being tested because we just have so limited data. There's only about 585 people that have ever been to space, including these new suborbital flights, right? So it's really not that many people. And most of them we don't have molecular data on, right? That was why it was, it was so exciting to write, I called them the first genetic astronauts because we actually know what happened to them genetically molecularly cellularly when they went to space. But before these recent missions we did, we just didn't know. So I think we're pretty far behind, but we'll, we'll catch up pretty fast. If, if, if all goes according to plan, there'll be a private space station by 2024 by Axiom, where we can do really long-term missions and do entirely new science. There'll be, if all goes well, by the late 2030s, a, a station around Mars called Mars Base Camp by Lockheed Martin. So there might even be ways to actually have you know, That's more in orbit population.
0: rather than on the Earth, uh, on the yeah. surface.
1: On the surface in orbit. And it's planned, so it's projected. We'll see if it happens, but that that is planned right now. And, you know, the, I think in the next 10, 20 years, we'll see a lot more expansion that's not just coming from Russia and the U.S. in a Cold War fighting each other sense, but from private industry, many countries, India, Israel, uh, the UAE as a, a orbiter, uh, the Chinese are really expanding quickly. So I think we have this uh, Space Race 2.0, which has a lot more players and a lot more tools, and the genetics will, will be part of that.
0: Ethically or politically or socially or technologically, is there anything that you're still concerned about? Are there any sort of real big questions that you haven't got answers to yet with regards to our potential to colonize the galaxy.
1: I think, I think it, not nothing. But I think it's just a question of, of will and of of coordination. I think we have a lot of the tools that exist already. Some of it's even just is, is framing it, like even the term colonizing the galaxy, we, there's such a loaded word to colonize and even settlement as a, as a loaded word. So he's almost said like explore the galaxy or to, uh, you know, to uh, to serve as guardians or to expand life. But it effectively, it's colonization. But we want to have all the good of colonization, all the, which is just the exploring part, but remove all the parts that were exploitative, that were disruptive, that were destructive, that, that were disruptive and destructive, that decimated entire ecosystems, you know, brought pathogens. Um, we did the opposite of deontogenic ethics, right? That basically just destroyed everything in its path. And so what I'm excited about is, I think we've learned as a, as a species, right? We've had a, a, a greater awareness and consciousness of of how we deploy technologies and tools, not just on Earth, but also how we when we go into space. So I'm I'm a, I'm an optimist because I think uh, there's evidence for it. We've learned from it. Infant mortality is lower than ever. Literacy is higher than ever. By most quantitative measures, humanity is really learning and doing better. Of course, we're heating the planet. We have other things we're doing that uh, we're trying to get a handle on. Uh, with mixed success. But I think um, we're even bringing species back from extinction potentially. So we're even correcting injustices of that. We uh, like the some ferret?
0: we bring a ferret back. Uh,
1: yeah, the black footed ferret. So yeah, we just sequenced the genome of some of the clones uh, last couple of weeks and confirming that they're just as, as, as okay and genetically diverse as some of the other ones. And what's amazing is a lot of times with cloning, you worry about lack of genetic diversity, but you can expand the diver- diversity of the clones. You actually in a, we have a smaller population size, but increased genetic diversity, with the tools of genetic engineering. So what's extraordinary is we can begin to even resolve and rectify some of the genetic injustices of our species past. Uh, you have to do it carefully, though, because if you bring a woolly mammoth back, uh, you know, it might have problems. We'll probably do it on an island, you because, know. Could it not uh,
0: have been cooler than a ferret? Yeah. Like, <laughs> First one. come on.
1: black-footed ferret. We had, we had a surrogate, don't we? Had it's a, a, a ferret know, with
0: socks to... on. Like, I don't care. <laughs>
1: it's, it's. But it's a really cute, you know, the cuteness factor was really ah, high for, ah. for the Revive and Restore project with, with Ben Novak and all the team. It's a great group. It's really it's it's conservation brought to the molecular and genetic level. And so I think that same ethos is what's described a lot in, in the antigenic principles is that, well, what what is our duty? What is our, our, our goal and and what's a duty for our species? Everyone, you know, the duties that you normally have in life, you could you could abrogate or give up on, like to a marriage, to a country, to a family. Uh, but this is something that I think is actualized upon awareness that it's an inherent duty for
0: our species. Do you think that we are spending too much or too little attention on capturing gal- galactic real estate?
1: Um, I would, I mean, we're doing it. It's slow, so I think I, I think that one of the big challenges is the Space Act pro- prohibits people from owning any land outside of Earth, uh, including the Moon. But it doesn't prohibit mining it. So you could actually create these hollow asteroids where you've mined everything out and you didn't ever own it, but you extracted everything out of it. And that would still not violate the space, uh, this, you know, the outer space treaty, I should say. Uh, and, and so what's interesting is I think the real estate so far is prohibited, but the uh, extraction and complete exploitation so far fine. So I, I think there's... Uh, There's actually every year a Harvard law, Harvard space law meeting where we just talk about issues in space law, which is a small group of lawyers. But nonetheless, uh,
0: are you familiar with Mara Cortona? Do you know who that is? She's the director of the Astropolitics Institute. no! no, no, she looks at the politics of space. And uh, she's been on the show. And like, dude, I am fascinated by that, by what does it mean to own an area of space what does yes, it mean yeah. to yeah that that, that stuff's yeah, that's amazing, but i I mean more than that, I mean in terms of the attention that's being paid to um finding ourselves new places to live by by going out into space, oh. it's an easy critique to say there's lots of injustices here on earth, uh we can chew gum and walk at the same time, like we it, it's more than uh, possible for us to do multiple things, but if you if you had a god's eye view and you were able to move some of the resources around, do you think that there is more there should be more of an impetus? for us to, to to apply pressure to this?
1: to get, Even to, to find more exoplanets, you I mean? Is, to it, find, it.
0: to do research for propulsion, to do research on genetics, should we be paying more attention? Or are we paying the appropriate percentage proportion of attention?
1: I think we should pay more. Again, I'm biased because I'm a geneticist and a space enthusiast, and I just wrote a book about this. So of course I think it should be more. But I think in proportion to what we've done before, the GDP for, of the United States, for example, it used to be almost 5% of the country's uh, assets were being spent on space exploration, space technology, propulsion. And now it's about uh, one-tenth of that, right? And, and so we know that you know, and, and you, we know that we can do both things. For example, at the same time, like we uh, passed uh, the Civil Rights Act, uh, the Voting Rights Act uh, in the '60s, while we were getting ready to go to the moon in the United States. And so, we can make social progress, make you know, economic progress while exploring the universe. So, I, I think we definitely can walk and chew gum at the same time. We should you know invest more in it because really the 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 rainfall of side effects from the technology that you develop for space. Uh, help medicine. They help uh, to local. Help transportation. Help a lot of industries because in space you're forced to think in very small spaces with very limited energy. It forces efficiencies that helps everything else you do at a terrestrial scale. So I think uh, why not? And there's been a lot of e- e- analyses of the economics of NASA and how much money's been spent. And it's usually the estimate that it leads to about you know one and a half to maybe a twofold for every dollar you spend, you get that dollar back either in a new business, a job that's created, a technology that's licensed, some economic output. That is writ large good. So I, I think, um, you know, there's probably some things that are more inefficient than others for any project. And maybe some are, are more productive than others. But, but writ large, it, more investment would probably lead to a lot of uh, downstream uh, downstream benefits without question.
0: I'm sure you'll be familiar with Nick Bostrom's thesis that he says every second that we spend not capturing the stars, we're losing forever. a a part of our bubble right we have this expansion and it means that over time we get less and less that we can have that anders sandberg also working out of the future of humanities institute his new book which isn't going to come out till next year is about how we would landscape solar systems and different galaxies by moving physically moving stars and planets around so Mm -hmm. we're getting towards sort of the real limits of of what's possible, at least in theory. I suppose. Our theories are at the limits of what's possible. Uh, and then yeah. you take that to the nth degree. You go all the way to the very, very, very final moments of the universe and make a justification for why changing the, the fundamental substrate that we are built on would be a good idea. Just let's finish with that.
1: Yep. Yep. And and that was the depressing part of the book again, reading the very end of the universe, because I because it, it begs the question. You say, okay, you move to a new star. Like, well, congratulations. But then the same thing's going to happen to that star. You go to the next one, the next one, the next one onward to another galaxy. Inevitably, you say, well, either the universe is going to collapse back into itself, or there'll be a big rip, or there'll be you know a heat death, an entropy uh, of the universe. In some way, the universe at some point will end uh, or change in a way that we probably wouldn't necessarily live through. But I make the argument that if we know, for example, it's going to continually move in on itself in a big crunch where all the matter recoalesces and maybe makes a new Big Bang, what if the next Big Bang, the next version of the universe, life doesn't emerge? Or if it doesn't emerge in the next five, 500 or 1,000 iterations of the universe, what if, what if this is it? And what if this uniqueness of life is really not just unique in this universe but in all universes that ever could be or will be? And so I make the case that if it's a deontogenic question, the uh, answer is clear. You would prevent the the death of the universe or the, in any version of it to preserve life. And so you would if we had the tools and the technologies to actually fundamentally restructure space time, I think we should do so because there's no guarantee that any anything else will serve as a shepherd for the universe. I think if we could have a universe that has an ability to make and preserve universes, that would be something I think a universe would want I kind of anthropomorphize the universes. But if I was a universe, that's what I would like. Right? I'd say,
0: yeah, yeah. That's real big picture thinking, Christopher Mason. Ladies and gentlemen, uh, the next five hundred years, engineering life to reach new worlds, will be linked in the show notes below. Uh, where else should people go? Any other stuff that you want to plug?
1: Uh, there's uh, we have a, a Twitter handle at uh, Mason underscore Labs. The Mason Lab is the lab at Cornell. Also, uh, it, you know, this bought the books are everywhere. Everywhere books are sold, you can get it obviously on like Amazon and, and Barnes and Noble and other websites. MIT Press. And then um, also, I'd say, you know, a lot of the work is on uh, NASA's websites for the exoplanets are fun to, to dig around in. And also on Instagram, Chris, Christopher.E.Mason. Some of that includes family random photos. But uh, yeah, my Twitter feed is the most common science feed, I'd say.
0: I love it. Cheers, Chris.
1: Thanks so much pleasure.
0: How are you feeling about that then? You fancying, uh, fancying a trip on a, on a big tin box for a few hundred years? Sounds good, doesn't it? If you enjoyed that episode, make sure that you have hit subscribe. It's the only way that you can ensure that you're not going to miss anything when it's uploaded every Monday, Thursday, and Saturday. And it supports the show. And it makes me very happy. Literally, no reason not to do it. Don't forget that the best joggers I have ever found, Boohoo Man's active skinny joggers, are just like £21 or probably $25 for a pack of two If you go to bit.ly slash manwisdom, that's bit.ly slash manwisdom. And the code MW40 gets you 40% off at checkout. This is available in America and the UK. Also, if you want to get out of pain and reclaim your fitness, you can get a free consultation call with the guys at Active Life Rx by going to bit.ly slash rxwisdom. That's bit.ly slash rxwisdom. I'll see you next time.